Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. We at Voice of San Diego want to take a minute to thank all of you who gave during our spring fundraising campaign. It is a scary time right now, we know, for a lot of businesses, and that includes our brothers and sisters in the news industry, newspapers everywhere, magazines that are struggling. So we weren't sure how a campaign to ask for support would work out, and we were overwhelmed with not only the resources that were donated, but the encouraging notes that came in as well that really provided a lot of energy to our staff. We reached our goal of $150,000 for this campaign, and that means a lot to all of us. So thank you for caring and for contributing. The rest of the year is still going to be the challenge of our lifetimes to make this work. It really is the ultimate test of our business model. So if you're worried that you missed the opportunity to donate, don't. You can still become a Voice of San Diego member and get access to all the exclusive content that we're going to try to provide virtually this year vosd.org slash donate. You can go to vosd.org slash donate and make your contribution. Again, to all of you, especially all of you who mentioned the podcast, thank you so much. It makes us want to do this and want to do it better each week, and we really appreciate it. Take care and stay safe. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Kogo. I am Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice of San Diego. I'm joined this week by Managing Editor Sarah Libby. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Andrew Keats is off these uh, next couple days. Sarah, uh, logistics, totally normal. Nothing weird, yeah, right? Yeah, it's super chill and easy to record a podcast. <laughs> Everything is just this weird challenge, things I didn't I didn't predict before. This week, I was doing the new Voice of San Diego at Home live stream on Wednesday, and uh, going well. Best things one yet. Got, things got live. Things got live. I, I was doing the best show yet. I was on. I had good energy. Know what I was saying. Everything was, all the clicks were working. And then <laughs> towards the end, I'm taking some of the questions and comments from people, and a damn bird flew through the window or through the big uh, door and was just in the kitchen with me and I, I I was discombobulated. He was banging against the window to get out again. It was just a whole scene. The Ugh. kids were running around, the dog, everything was just, uh, it was it was quite a moment. Uh, Sounds violent. It was, <laughs> it was, it was not good. I had to kill the stream and go and save the bird and put him in a bowl with did not kill the bird. Save the bird. Bird flew away. But the live stream uh, had a, a definitely memorable moment. Uh, impossible without the COVID-19. <laughs> I've got some news of my own. Okay. Which is that I just made that whipped coffee from the internet. Really? Yeah, it was pretty gross. And oh. it took a lot of effort. <laughs> okay. But but now I'm super wired and ready to do this. Awesome. All right, we have a great show this week. We are going to talk about several important things. This was the first week for me that we that it felt like we were turning a corner or some things were, clouds were starting to part, whatever metaphor you want to use, felt better. 
and uh, and that has to do with the curve. Have you ever heard so much about a curve in your life? Any curve? Not just curves, but like this whole new lexicon that we're yeah. pretending we always knew. Like, yeah, social distancing and flattening the curve as if those were things we ever said ever. <laughs> Never. Right. Curve is flattening. Uh, and so now there's a lot of chatter about when we can go back to normal, but what is even normal? And uh, that brings up testing. It's one of the core principles of Governor Gavin Newsom's outline. He like, had six principles of things he would be looking at, criteria, in order to reopen the economy. And at the top is the concept of widespread testing and then isolating of individuals who you identify who have it and then taking care of them. And that's the key. But where are the damn tests? Because as our Will Huntsbury found out this week, there aren't very many of them being administered in San Diego. And uh, we'll talk about how working from home has helped the environment and what it could mean for the region's environmental plans. Finally, we're going to talk about the budget, uh, Mayor Kevin Faulkner. So remember last week we talked about the budget he was going to release, the draft. He did that, and it's brutal, but maybe it's not as bad as it could be. We're going to talk to independent budget analyst Andrea Tevlin about what you should look for if you're trying to understand that document. She's the independent budget analyst, kind of works for the city council as they try to crunch all these numbers and then review it. They have a couple months to review it and make their decision, which he will just disregard. (laughs) We've been talking for months and months about the Metropolitan Transit Systems Plan to put a sales tax on this upcoming November's ballot. It was a big part of, you know, Georgette Gomez's political career. Later, it was a big part of Nathan Fletcher's political career. Ain't going to happen. It's done. It is done. Today, Nathan Fletcher announced that after their meeting uh, Thursday, it's today, that after MTS's board meeting, they decided to put it on hold. It was just a little bit of an awkward time to be asking for a tax increase on sales, uh, the most regressive possible tax. And he said, quote, while the day will come that we ask the public to make an investment in transit, that day is not going to come in 2020. Sarah, no surprise, right? No, I think this was just really making it official and... It, it just goes to this like awkward situation we're in and where in which like we need the government to be kind of bailing out individuals and businesses more than ever. At the same time, the government is just as impacted, if not more so than anyone else by the situation that we're in. Yeah, the government has a major investment in the community. It takes obviously uh, extracts part of, uh, you know, uh, the, the economy, but then reinvests that. And so uh, these broad cuts from every government agency, maybe except for the federal government, are, are going to have their own impact on the community. And uh, and this was just one example of uh, nobody, none of the, even the supporters of the tax increase, the most ardent supporters were like, yeah, we're not going to do that. So I think that brings up the question about what what's going to happen to that proposal to raise property taxes for... Uh, housing and and affordable housing seems like it's got to be in a similar place. Yeah. Certainly both of them couldn't have survived, but it's entirely possible that neither of them will actually be on the ballot. 
We haven't heard. That's the city council's decision about whether to put that on the ballot. We'll see if they go forward. All right, first, our uh, environment reporter, Mackenzie Elmer, she come in with a, with a fire. She did a story this week about how we're all driving less and that traffic has gone down 60%. The roads have cleared up, and that has an effect on the air. What's that gas uh, she tracked? Nitrogen? Nitrogen dioxide? I think nitrous oxide. It's <laughs> one like of the nitri- uh, one of those things they m- mention in the Fast <laughs> and Furious movies, right? Right. Same That's thing. the one that makes your 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 wheels go <laughs> your fast. Your car go really fast. Yeah, the <laughs> nitrogen dioxide. Thank you. Yes, nitrogen dioxide. That's the one that causes the brown haze, and there's no brown haze right now. And she did a series of graphs. We have a bunch of air quality sensors across the county, and every single one of them is registering at lower uh, emissions, lower smog, better quality air right now. And uh, SANDAG, San Diego Association of Governments, and other places that are trying to do these climate action plans for the future have started to take into account that we may never go back to the same transportation patterns that we had. Obviously, a lot of people are going to get back on the roads, but some of us might figure out how to stay home a lot more, and that could be something they build into some of their plans. That was that kind of her story was about how things have changed literally in the air right now, but then also how they might change for these plans. Yeah, I thought what was interesting is that, you know, she brought up the city's climate action plan, which a big part of which rests on getting people to change their commuting habits um, to go from commuting by car to commuting by transit or biking or walking. And it didn't seem to envision at all that people just wouldn't go to work and that they would work from home. And so... um, that's not currently a component of the climate action plan, but um, you know the plan is due to be updated soon. So it seems like it's certainly something that could be incorporated now that we have this new vision of uh, how possible it is to have lots of people working from home, or maybe some people will commute part of the time and people will be staggered in offices as we kind of like slowly go back to normal. Yeah. I mean, as I outline the possible silver linings of this thing, it, the one of the top ones is just like all of these meetings that we all went to, they could probably be done differently. And especially the public meetings, you know, this, it, was a, it, it was an act of elitism to be able to leave your home, leave your children, go wait at a public agency's, you know, evening meeting for three hours to make your comment you know, whether it's a community planning group or the school board or the city council. And so for all of these things, if there is a way that we discover where we can weigh in, you could potentially envision a lot more people being able to to weigh in, to participate, a lot more work to be able to get done, and and a lot less travel and a lot less headaches as far as like, uh, you know, burdens with kids and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, all of those agencies also seem to have different rules and different meeting times and different procedures. And so if this does kickstart some sort of more generalized uh, process for how you would be able to submit, you know, feedback or comments, uh, that would be great. All right. So check that out at voiceofsandiego.org. Kent McKenzie has been a great addition. Look forward to her stories in the Environment Report every other Monday. All right, despite repeated claims that San Diego's coronavirus testing capacity is going up, it does not look like that from the data. 
So Governor Gavin Newsom came out this week and said, testing's this high priority. We're going to have to test. We're going to have to trace people who have it. We're going to have to isolate them. We're going to have to um, take care of people who get it. And all of that is is only going to be done. The, the cornerstone of that is testing, testing, testing. Uh, our Will Huntsbury quotes and talks to some of the county public health leaders who said that you uh, need about you need tens of thousands of tests per day in order to hit some of these goals that they have in order to get us to the point where we can ease this lockdown. And they're not doing tens of thousands of tests today. They're doing an average last uh, a week ago Wednesday, the the week preceding Wednesday, they did an average of 960 tests per day. That's not tens of thousands per day. And it's not going up. And nobody can really tell us when that might change or what's going on. It was yet another story about the central issue, the the curve in San Diego, and and yet like it's this obvious story, and it's not it's not getting better. That that part of the the whole central discussion is not getting better. Yeah, I mean, so I guess it can be simultaneously true that testing capacity is increasing, and yet we're not doing more tests. Um, But that's a problem in and of itself if we have this capacity to do them and yet we're not because um, the directives from health officials still seem to be that only basically the sickest people um, get tests. And, you know, the, the directives have also changed. It used to be if you had been exposed to somebody directly, you could get a test. And and still there are a lot of people who maybe are not showing symptoms who don't have access to tests. And so until we reach a point where everybody who needs a test or thinks there's any possible chance they have it can get tested, things aren't going to go back to normal. No, not at all. And I I think this is nationwide. It's like, where are the tests? Like you could just have a website, whereearethetests.com and just track it because it's hard to imagine us ever living with this threat Unless they can get to a point where, I mean, I, they're not going to be able to eradicate the coronavirus. That doesn't seem like anything we could hope for, or maybe a vaccine in a year or two. So if we're ever going to have this threat just with us, it, it has to be accompanied by some sort of widespread testing. They were saying in Will's piece, Will Huntsbury again did this piece for us this week. He was saying in there that it, that they're still relying on test companies that are providing feedback after 12 days after the test which is like, you know, never going to get up to the scale that we would need if you're waiting 12 days for the responses on those kinds of things. So I just don't know, you know, I'd like to hear where, how we hope that it's ever going to get better. And that's a, that's a part, that's along with the curve of the, the, you know, cases going down, the testing capacity, we need to have another chart that just shows how that's going up. And then you factor in um, another component of what we need, um, before things can go back to normal, which is sort of this tracing people who are infected. And, you know, that capacity still seems like it's in its infancy, too. Um, The county, I think, is largely just using humans um, who are kind of by hand doing these, you know, tracing who's been where and who's been in contact with who. And so until that ramps up, you know, alongside testing, man, we still have a long way to go. Yeah. Well, one group that is getting tested right now are the homeless people who are going into the shelter that formerly was known as the Convention Center 
downtown. Uh, right now, there are about 800 people who have been moved from other shelters in the community who that was that were considered, you know, too densely packed at the moment. That were considered, you know, potential risk areas for transmission of the coronavirus. Uh, they are. Um, they were in those tents, those bridge tents, or in other shelters. They were moved into the convention center. Now the convention center is starting to accept people from just on the street, and all of those uh, people at the convention center are going to get a test. The city released today that people who are found to have it are going to be immediately isolated and then sent to a hotel room. The county, of course, has not filled up all the two thousand hotel rooms that they set aside, both for people who don't have access to an area to isolate themselves or people who are literally homeless and are at risk of transmitting the disease. And so those two groups of hotel rooms are not filled up. Uh, The convention center, uh, those being filled up, like we said, with people, brings up a lot of questions about what happens to them over the next few months. But um, we do know that the city, based on an investigation this week and analysis of the data from Lisa Halverstadt, she found that there's been not much of a decline, if any, in the enforcement, the citations giving out for encroachment and for illegal lodging, the, sort, the two sort of typical citations that homeless people get on the street. Uh, those have continued, even with what's happening. Uh, and, you know, the police department says they're trying to respond to, A, you know, still the complaints that neighborhoods are, are sending in, and B, you know, fear that they're spreading some of the disease. And uh, so that's caused immediately some controversy, people saying, like, this is not the time to be citing some of the, some of them. And then other people were say, well, we need to get them into the convention center. Uh, what did you take away from the piece? So one thing that I think it was important Lisa pointed out was that uh, what the city's doing appears to conflict not just with uh, CDC guidance about disrupting homeless camps during this time because of the potential, you know, if they're being pushed from place to place, um, you know, they're obviously at risk of spreading the virus, um, but also seems to conflict with guidance from the city council that sort of urged the mayor to ease up on this type of enforcement And the mayor's office has sort of justified continuing enforcement by saying they don't think the CDC guidance uh, necessarily applies to San Diego because we don't any longer have these big, large-scale encampments that other cities have. And they they believed that the guidance was referring to those big, you know, tent cities that we no longer have. Um, But Lisa actually followed up with the CDC to see if that was their understanding of the guidance. And the CDC said, no any sort of enforcement, large or small, we are recommending against at this time. Yeah, the mayor's office is saying, like, this isn't Skid Row, like in, in L.A., where people were, were said, like, you're in this big encampment that is essentially your village, so we shouldn't, uh, the CDC, in their eyes, were saying, like, don't disrupt that because we need them just to stay put there. And so we pushed, uh, and Lisa pushed the CDC to, to respond directly, and, and it seemed like they were saying, no, no, yeah, the, we just want people to stay put wherever they're at. Um, and then the the point on the city council, too, they said, you know, we, we, we asked her to look into parking right now. Parking, there's basically no parking enforcement, no meter uh, checks, uh, you know, the 72-hour thing about being on the street, that's gone, uh, except if you park in, somebody, in front of somebody's literal driveway, they're not going to mess with you. Uh, but they did go after, uh, we found just in one week, three people who were sleeping in their cars, uh, even though the city council had said 
uh, leave those folks alone um, or try to figure that out. And yeah, I think um, it seems like on the, the mayor's office is desperately uh, trying to avoid a situation where it gets it gets hit again uh, for uh, you know letting a disease spread wildly in a in the homeless community. But um, also, there's people's civil liberties. They they cannot be there. They cannot be confined. Um, you know, they have habeas corpus or whatever it's called. Like they have the right to their bodies right now. So uh, it's a tough balance. But um, but yeah, it was an interesting story, right? I mean, it, it had a, a. She went out. I, I think she went out at like five a.m. or six a.m. on that Friday when it was just pouring rain. And yeah. there's police out there working, you know, some of the folks that found shelter underneath the awning at the Central Library. And now there's a fence there keeping people from going there. Yeah. Typical Lisa. She was out there at 5 a.m. in the pouring rain talking to homeless people. And and you're right, even though the the library's closed and it was often, you know, a place where they were able to charge their phones and um get some refuge during the day they're still there and um the police have like set um time in which they can enforce things because of earlier settlements with the city and you know as soon as the clock flips to when they're allowed to do it they essentially show up and start clearing people away yeah and and you know i think there's people who point out well they they don't want to go you know we need them to get into shelter and a lot of people don't want to go there and Lisa explained to me in a discussion we had this week that a lot of them don't want to go to the convention center because they fear that they'll get sick there. You know, there's, and so there's, and they're also comfortable with the areas they're at. They're, they're just like you and I, like they have their own neighborhood in a way. So they know where to go to the bathroom. They know how to handle themselves. So it's a, it's a, just a terrible dilemma in so many different ways. But, um, you know, there are some things. One of the things I'd like to ask the mayor is, and and is his interpretation of what's going to happen to these people at the convention center because they call it Operation Shelter to Home. Does that mean the city has literally taken the charge for these up to fifteen hundred people that he will find them permanent housing? That's a that's quite a responsibility, be quite a mandate. I don't think he's said that in particular, but that's the implication of the message. Yeah, I mean, the the earlier shelters that we had were called bridge shelters because they were supposed to be a bridge into housing. And we saw that that was a much harder lift than, you know, the city was able to pull off uh, most of the time. And so now to be taking in even more and more of these people under really dire circumstances, it's just hard to see that it's going to get easier to find them permanent homes. Right. Okay, we're going to talk about how all of this impacts the city of San Diego's budget and how you can understand this giant document that was just released, draft budget for next year's spending at the city of San Diego. Matters more than it has in quite a while. And Andrea Tevlin, the independent budget analyst at the city of San Diego, is going to help us understand how how to look at it. If you stay tuned, we will be right back. Stay with us. Hey y'all, I'm Will Huntsbury. I'm an education reporter and one of the hosts of a show called Good Schools for All. It's a podcast all about schools, how they work and how they don't. This season will bring you stories about struggling schools, preschools, and an unprecedented scam that cost California tens of millions of dollars. Catch the new season now, wherever you listen to podcasts.
Okay, we talked last week about just how big of a deal this budget cycle was going to be. Not only the new budget that the mayor was proposing, but also the modification of last year's plan for how the city of San Diego would spend some money. And there is nobody who spends more time maybe sort of going over these numbers and thinking about all the options that the city council has as it gets its chance to weigh in uh, more than Andrea Tevlin. She's the independent budget analyst at the city of San Diego. Been there for how long, Andrea? Uh, 14 and a half years. Well, good. Well, thank you for joining. Um, I, I wanted to get uh, the smartest person on the phone I could to, to go over all the different decisions everybody has to make now, and I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, so uh, let's describe what you do, first of all. So you you work for the city council, correct? Exclusively for the city council and the public, just not the mayor. Right, so the mayor proposes a budget. Now your job is to read that, your team reads that, you come out, you provide reports. So you and I have been through a bunch of different cycles. Uh, I remember the the doldrums of the uh, the time when you started in 2006 and some of those uh, difficult budget years with the pension situation. I remember talking with you after the Great Recession and during it, and as we made all those difficult decisions. Where do you put this in in framing it as far as the challenge that the city is going to face? Oh, this would be top of the chart. Absolutely. Because of the uncertainty and the nature of this event that's going on, it's nothing like even a $100 million deficit where we had to cut. And um, it's just different. There is so, so much more uncertainty and more components to when our business is going to get back, when will people even show up at a convention center? So many more uh, components of this than there were in 2008 when we had to make, I think it was about $180 million in cuts. So what can change? What what can the public do now that the budget has come out? The mayor has shown that, you know, he has a kind of a unilateral power really to to kind of enforce a budget that he wants to see there, even even if the council uh, chooses to do another budget, he can use his veto power and others to just to just uh, put it through. What, what can the public influence at this point? Well, the council does have final uh, budget authority and um, depending upon on their priorities versus perhaps some of the mayors, um, they can make those changes as they have done in the past. But they can do things. They can do things that um, maybe uh, gets to their some of their priorities that were cut back. Maybe they want to restore some of those some of those cuts, but they'll have to do trades for that. So we'll we'll be looking for their mo- their memos and the kind of uh, feedback we get at council, and that that will make a big difference at the hearings. Uh, it, it's and then it will just have to be massaging everything that we can as well just there's not there aren't a lot of options we don't want to go deeper in our reserves you know we haven't touched those reserves and i think you remember our reserves was three percent in 2006 when i got here and it's now 15.5 and it won't hurt us to take this 54 million out of there because it just makes all the sense in the world 
because that's what an emergency reserve is for. And this is a this is what many cities are going to have to do. So just to clarify, the mayor is proposing to use $54 million from the reserve. And what you're saying is that's what it's for. What does that take the reserve to, do you know? Um, well, it's 205 now, so that's about 150. And we can rebuild up our, our reserves uh, over time. It'll, it'll be slow. But the rating agencies, are, the staff has talked to them, and obviously they know the seriousness of this. And if there was any um, reason to to do it, um, it would be this. So it doesn't look like the city has an actual cash flow problem right now, right? It can, it can still pay its bills and, and survive. Right, yes. When you've looked at just briefly what you've been able to see, do you see any areas that are going to be a real tight, uh, tough discussion? Well, it's absolutely the service reductions for the yeah. departments. And it's, you know, opening up libraries and then closing down some of the hours, closing down rec center hours. Um, those arts libraries so those are going to be the really tough ones i think um i think there might be quite a bit of discussion about homelessness and you know he's increasing some funding for clean san diego um they'll probably be talking about that and you know how is that crucial or you know do we need to add a a million dollars right now for that that's an interesting point. So that was the program he started to be able to respond to graffiti calls, uh, a lot of the two one or the the get it done app responses. Um, yes, you know. I think it started out about two and a half million or three million a couple of years ago, and re- has really grown. And and so there wasn't. Uh, we wondered if there might be some cuts there. There's also, um, like you said, we talked about the. Um, the cuts to the libraries that he proposes, the cuts to rec centers, uh, the cuts to um, some of the, there was a couple of others I didn't quite understand. So you, you mentioned, I saw them say graffiti abatement was getting cut back, but I also saw the increase in clean San Diego. So how does that get um, separated out? Do you know how that works out? No, no, okay. I don't. We'll be definitely looking into that. But All you right. know, the question is, do we add now to service levels and then have to cut maybe an employee's job? It, you know, those are the questions. Yeah. You know, as, as your staff uh, goes through this, anything that you want the public to know as, as they try to, um, you know, digest the document, try to understand where things are, uh, anything that, you know, how you look at a document like this that you think people should understand and, and follow? Yes. I, I just really want to have the public know that that is such a critical part of the budget process. We really need to have people participate. It's so it's so critical. That's what we look for in the budget. Aside from what are um, council's priorities, we look at the community priorities, and you know what are we seeing and hearing, and you know and taking our direction from the council, but also from from the public. Especially if we see something like libraries closing, like what the mayor did in two thousand eight. He recommended closing like twelve libraries, and that didn't fly at all, no matter how bad of the problem was, because there had been no communication with the community. But also, just to call you, all your council members um, and call call the mayor, call the mayor's staff, um, and really get your input in there so that they know what you're feeling about this. 
Um, you know, maybe some people are fine with the libraries being fewer hours. Maybe that's not as serious as it, as it was uh, many years ago, but I kind of doubt it. But it's good to know what, what are the latest um, real priorities with the community. And also, if they have questions about things, they should feel free to um, call our office. We do a lot of talking to um, community people, you know, on questions about various issues. Our report on the 29th will be on our site. They can also go get the get the mayor's budget that is on his site now. So there's a lot you can do. There really is. Yeah. So, yeah, all you have to do is look up uh, City of San Diego Independent Budget Analyst and you can check out all of her reports. Uh, their entire job is just to try to make sense of all this on behalf of the city council and thus on behalf of you. So uh, part of the reason I wanted to get her involved at first. So uh, big decisions coming forward, a lot of big changes proposed and then, um, you know, a, a lot of uh, potential problems either being kicked down the road or, or, or being dealt with right now. And so uh, big time to be involved in the city. And, you know, maybe this whole experience will allow us to more easily connect with the council without having to physically go down there. Maybe we'll learn some new tricks about that, about how to weigh in from afar. So that might be a silver lining here. Okay, Andrea Tevlin, she is the independent budget analyst for the city of San Diego. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, Scott. Be well. You too. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast. It is the, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in our respective homes, but based in the great Voice of San Diego podcast studio, which is sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund. Thank you, Bob Nelson Charitable Fund. We have a new show you should know about. It's called Voice of San Diego at Home. It's a video series. It goes up Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays on social media. It's a live stream. I can't promise wildlife every week. We cover the news of the week, audience questions, interviews with reporters. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram to be able to see it. We are at Voice of San Diego on all of those platforms. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief. Sarah Libby's Managing Editor. And this show is produced by Nate John, Megan Wood, and Adriana Heldes. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.